Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Sam. I work here at the Royal College. Um, and every now and again, we have to confess that we aren't the only Museum of Health and Medicine in the greater London area. Um, and we're very delighted to work with our colleagues from other museums of health and medicine, including today's speaker, Caroline Smith, who uh, is based at the Bethlehem Museum of Mind, which has just relaunched after a major new redevelopment. Caroline divides her time between the National Portrait Gallery and the National Gallery and Bethlehem, where she is head of learning. And I'm delighted that she'll be telling us all about it today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I must confess that this will be a brief history of Bethlehem. Um, Bethlehem being a very old hospital, um, founded back in 1247 as originally the Priory of the Order of St. Mary of Bethlehem, which is a name that is far too long to say more than once, which is where we get the name Bethlehem from. Originally, people shortened it to Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Bedlam, because they didn't agree about spelling. That's where we, we have our current name. We were originally founded by an alderman of the City of London, Simon Fitzmary, whose name lives on in, in one of our wards. And originally, the hospital was designed really to look after knights setting off for the Holy Land. But very quickly, they treated the poor and the sick of the surrounding area. And by about 1460, they were known as a hospital that treated the mentally ill. Though I think we do need to be a little bit careful because when we're talking about treatment and hospitals, what they were doing for you back in that period was somewhat limited. Um, what I thought I would do this afternoon is to talk through the various sites and organisations of the hospital, talk a little bit about how they diagnosed and admitted you and treated you, and what their views were regarding recovery. Now, unfortunately, you won't find anything of the original hospital left, and we have some material in our archive that tells us a little bit about what they were doing for you. Our best guess is that they were keeping you fed, watered and clean, and that was really more or less it. The original site is now where Liverpool Street Station can be found, and you will see the little blue plaque if you come out of the station on the side of the Great Eastern Hotel. They were there for a number of hundreds of years before moving down the road to this building here, which again sadly no longer exists. Apparently it's Pizza Express these days. Um, and there is another blue plaque telling you that it, it was the site of Bethlehem. They moved there in 1676. They don't, um, they're not damaged by the Great Fire of London but they sort of take advantage of that great rebuilding that happens in London after the Great Fire. And to most people looking at this building, it does not look like a hospital. People tend to think that it looks more like a palace or a stately home. And in fact, at the time, 
people called it a palace for lunatics. They were very surprised that a building like this had been built for the people that were regarded as the lowest in society. We think that one of the reasons it was so grand was that it was all paid for by charitable donations. And the people who gave money had no interest in it being hidden away. They wanted a grand building that they could direct their friends to and say, oh, I helped build this, you know, go and have a look. So we think that's one reason. It could take 200 patients. And the way that they organised it was to have men on one side of the building and women on the other. And as a woman, you would only have been looked after by other women and vice versa. And that's a situation that really continues right up until the early 20th century. It's the pressures of the First World War and men going off to fight and a staff shortage that really provides the catalyst for, for that situation changing. Now, if we want to think about the inside of the building, I'm sure many of you will be familiar with Hogarth's Rake's Progress. And um, if you want to see the original painting, a short step across the square um, will take you there. It is a satire. It's the story of Tom Rakewell, who ends his days in Bethlehem. This is the sixth painting in the series. Here he is. But we do think that it's quite accurate as far as the interior of the hospital is concerned because of its layout. So over on the right, you'll see a metal gate. These metal gates ran up the middle of the building and they separated the men from the women. You might remember, if we just go back, can I go back? Yes. There are long corridors running the length of the building. They called them galleries. So I suppose it's a bit like a long gallery in a stately home. If you're well enough, you come out of your individual room and you can socialise. And that's what those people are doing here. If you look into the first individual room on the left, you'll see that the patient is on straw. Um, straw was used as bedding, though by this point, um, it's largely been um, overtaken by, by proper bedding. And you'll also notice that the window has no shutters. And again, by this period, shutters were, were placed on the windows to make it a little bit warmer. But Hogarth has got many details right. Many patients would have had free movement, as you see here. He's also tried to give you um, different types of madness. So he's depicted religious delusions, delusions of grandeur. This man here on the stairs is said to have been disappointed in love. And our records show that disappointment in love is given as a cause of insanity right up until the end of the 19th century. You might notice this man here with the telescope. This is the period where Parliament has offered a prize to discover longitude. And we don't know whether Hogarth is saying, you've got to be mad if you think this can be done, 
or whether he's saying that even the mad in Bethlehem were desperate and trying to win this prize. So he's given us a number of social comments along the way. Um, you might notice the rather well-dressed ladies in the middle. They are not patients and they're not members of staff. They are visitors. They're sightseers. Until 1770, Bethlehem allowed unrestricted visiting. So you could make a donation. Um, you weren't charged to enter. It's a bit like going into a museum these days. There's a donation box very prominent. Um, that was the situation in Bethlehem. And to us, that is really quite an uncomfortable thing, isn't it? We think that the governors, the people who ran the hospital, they saw it as an important source of revenue. Remember, they're a charity. They also said that as a charity, they needed to be accountable. So you should allow people in because then they could see what they were doing with your money. Um, they also thought that it was educational to allow people in. Unfortunately, human nature being what it is, most people didn't go for those reasons. We know that Bethlehem was on the tourist route. If you'd come to London, the 18th century version of Rough Guide to London would have told you, oh, go to the Tower, go to St Paul's, oh, and you can go to Bethlehem. We also know that it was a very popular place for the young apprentice boys in London to take their girlfriends there on dates. Um, Yes, you need to think about that one. <laughs> um, so by 1770, they looked at this situation again and they decided that it had to end. And from that period, you had to have permission, you had to have a ticket, you had to have a proper reason for wanting to go. And I think it was partly their attempt to get what they would have regarded as a, a better type of visitor you know, through their doors. Now, the Moorfields building was not big enough by the end of the 18th century. It was also a problem in terms of its, the level to which it had been built, I suppose. Although it looked very grand on the outside, it was not terribly well built. So they had to decide, should they move or should they rebuild? And they decided to move partly because the area itself was no longer open and green and leafy. It was quite built up. And so they took the very radical decision to move south of the river, and they went to St George's Fields, um, just over the river. And you will probably recognise that building. It's still there today. It is the Imperial War Museum now. And so if you visit the, the museum today, this would be where you would go in. They kept the same model that they'd had at the second site. Either side of the main block, which was the admin block, they had the wards. Again, they kept men one side, women the other. But this time, they had four separate floors. And the worst cases went into the basement. And as you recovered, you moved further up the building. So by the time you got to the top floor, you were convalescing 
and you were nearly ready to go home. From 1870, they also had a convalescent home um, down in Surrey in Whitley, and patients would have been sent there for the last month of their, of their stay. They were seldom full. Although they could take 400 patients, generally speaking, there was somewhere between three and 400. And women seemed to outnumber men for most of that period. This, these photos are taken just before um, the hospital moves. And you can see that it's, it looks rather genteel, doesn't it? Um, you know, before the, the move to our, our current home. They'd rather abandoned um, separate rooms by this point. You'll see from the top slide, it's much more of a dormitory style. Um, patients would have had relatively free movement. They possibly not as much as in that earlier picture I showed you from Hogarth. Generally speaking, they had to be accompanied. There were separate wards for convalescents. There were separate wards for people who they felt needed to be um, secluded. But by the early 19th century, it certainly become a much more genteel sort of place, I think. In 1930, the decision was taken to move again. And this is where you will find the hospital today and where you will also find the museum. Again, the reasons for the move were the same. They want more space, but they also want space which is much more green and leafy. And to get that, you have to go further out of London. So today we're between um, Beckenham and Croydon, really. The site when they moved there was completely open. It was all fields. And they took another quite momentous decision, really, which was not to replicate those two um, rather grand buildings that had been the, the, the previous two sites. They built on what they called the villa system, which meant that each ward had its own individual building. The idea was that you should have small detached buildings um, on an open site. You shouldn't have anything that was over one story. The idea being that it would be somewhere that was not as intimidating, that people would recover better if they felt that they were less in an institution and more um, in their own home. You'll see Queen Mary on the right, who opens the hospital. Um, she's about to go and plant a tree, which promptly dies, um, but they don't tell her, they just plant another one and rather gloss over that, I'm afraid. And you can still see it, actually. Um, it, is, it is the second replacement is still there. Um, of course, in 1930, when they moved to, to Beckenham, there is still no National Health Service. So the big change that comes about at Bethlehem is really in 1948, when the decision is taken to join together with the Maudsley Hospital at Denmark Hill. And you'll see that in the, the slide at the middle. It's, it's not a view you ever see of the hospital today. If you ever go down there, there are always so many buses parked outside, you don't, you don't see the building. But um, they joined together in 1948 to make one institution and stay that way until 1999, when healthcare is yet again reorganized. 
and today we are part of a large healthcare trust. We're part of the South London and Maudsley NHS Foundation Trust, which is as long a title as the Priory of the Order of St Mary of Bethlehem, so nobody causes that anymore either. Um, we're generally referred to as SLAM, and I think one of the big changes, of course, is that historically you would have had treatment in hospital. Now, of course, much treatment takes place in the community. So the trust as a whole is responsible for three hospitals. It also runs psychiatric services in a number of London hospitals. It manages about 100 sites within the community and it provides mental health services, including community mental health teams to um, four London boroughs and also addiction services to some more. So it's a huge undertaking. Of the three hospitals, Betham is still a little bit odd because we don't just take local patients on our site, we take national patients too. We're the home of a number of national specialist directorates, which means that we will take people from all over the UK. We have things like the National Psychosis Unit, the Mother and Baby Unit, the Eating Disorders Service, um, all on our site. And they tend to be for people who have had treatment locally. It's maybe not worked for them. They might have had a local hospital admission. They're referred further up the chain and they might come down to us. So if you do come to our site today, you'll notice that the ward in the bottom right um, is very different from the vision that Hogarth gave us. Um, everybody on our site, we have 350 beds altogether, and everyone has their own room, and everyone has their own bathroom, and we're very lucky we have a lot of green space, including lots of occupational therapy services, which I know that a lot of hospitals have, have had cut, so we do feel fortunate in that respect. I think we should say something about diagnosis historically. If you come down to the museum, these two statues are the first things that you will see as you come through the door. They are raving a melancholy madness and they were built, or made rather, for the gateway of that very grand building that I showed you at Moorfields. And they represented the two diagnoses, really, of the time, that you were either melancholic or you were raving. And I'll just read you the definitions that they used for both of those. This is from a dissertation on insanity of 1811. And it said that mania, voices and gestures are wild and impetuous. They're irascible and violent on any contradiction or restraint. They ramble with wonderful rapidity of ideas and speech. Whereas melancholia, the countenance is gloomy, the mind riveted upon one object and train of thought. Some are silent and morose. And we compare that with the 400, over 400 different diagnoses of mental illness um, that you would find in um, DSM-5, the Diagnostic Manual and its European equivalent, you know, they have um, multiplied considerably. Um, they do have difficulties in diagnosing people at the time. 
Um, if we look at the 19th century, one of the things that they're using is phrenology. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the phrenology head, that you feel the bumps on somebody's head and that will indicate certain temperaments. The other thing that the 19th century um, physicians used as a tool for diagnosis was physiognomy. And there's quite a long tradition of artists being asked to make medical drawings of the face. And once photography comes in, of photographs being taken. And the idea was that the face is the window to what's happening on the inside. So the way that your cheekbones are shaped, the gap between your mouth and your nose, it's all a clue about what's actually happening inside and inside the brain. And they thought that by putting together drawings or photographs of those people with a mania, then dementia, etc., they could look for common facial characteristics. And that would help them to diagnose the next person um, better. Again, it sounds quite bizarre to us. Um, I suppose the best way of thinking about it, and, and certainly when we think about treatment too in this period, is that probably in 150 years' time, somebody will look back at us and think, well, why did they ever think that would work? What on earth were they thinking about when they used that as a diagnostic tool? I'm sure there will be something. You might notice that one of those photos um, has two people rather than one. This is a father and son who were diagnosed and admitted to hospital within a month of each other, both suffering from melancholia. And it's interesting that they thought to get them together to take the photograph, and also that you have the same view of their faces. Um, so the idea would be that you could possibly compare. It's a very sad case, unfortunately. The elder man's wife is terminally ill. He is admitted to hospital suffering from acute melancholia because of this. His son is admitted a month later. And when the elder man receives news of his wife's death, he uh, doesn't recover at all. He dies within days of receiving the news. And sadly, his son is discharged uncured um, a year later. Um, but the photographs are interesting as a diagnostic tool. I think it's also worth saying that uh, when we think about admission and diagnosis as what sort of patients the hospital took and how they paid for it. We've mentioned the donations box, um, and you'll see that on, on the right. And they were very keen that people should donate, and also the governors um, were very particular about the sort of arms box they put out there to make sure that you couldn't take your money out again. Um, there's this wonderful quotation where they say that springs to be put on the poor boxes or some other care to be taken to prevent the money being picked out. Um, once you've given it, then that's it. In this period, there were very a few hospitals that would treat the mentally unwell. A survey at the end of the 19th century suggested that there were around 15, and most of them are charitable in nature. Elsewhere, you might have treatment um, if you could pay for it in uh, the doctor's private house. And there were a series of private madhouses which were unregulated until the beginning of the 19th century and varied in quality, I think we should say. So Betham relied on donations of money, but it also relied on donations of land to provide for its patients. 
it provided uh, for the rents from land were a key source of revenue. And you may be interested to know that the hospital still owns the south side of Piccadilly, where Fortnum's is, um, is still owned by the hospital. When it was given, it wasn't quite so valuable. They were then quite careful about who they took. Um, they would have argued that you know, they had to get value for money. Um, they, they had to get results. And so they had very strict criteria about admission. First of all, anybody who wished to be admitted, and generally speaking, it's their family who bring them to the hospital, had to be seen and certified by two doctors who were independent of each other and independent of the hospital. Even then, Betham reserved the right to make its own decision. Um, they tended to take people for about a week and observe them and see whether they agreed with the diagnosis. They would only take people that they believed were curable. They wouldn't admit you if they didn't think that they could help you. And they would only keep you for 12 months. Their view, which sounds quite harsh to us, doesn't it? But their view was that a year was long enough to cure you if they were going to. And if they hadn't done it, then it was better that you went somewhere that looked after you long term and your place was given to somebody who might benefit from it. So 12 months, either side, you know, a few weeks either side, they would keep you. That was really the cutoff point. There are always exceptions. And the lady that you see here is an exception. Her name is Eliza. She was admitted three times in the 19, 1850s, rather. The first two occasions, she recovers and she goes home. It's all fine. But on the third occasion, although she has made progress, she's not well enough to leave. And there is no other provision for her. So they take the view that they will transfer her to the incurable ward. From 1730, they've had a very small ward for incurable patients. You can't be admitted there directly, but for patients who've come to the end of their 12 months and are uncured, there is that provision for a small number. Eliza goes there in 1859. She dies in Bethlehem in 1907. So she is very much the exception that proves the rule. This is the, um, the longest pa serving patient that we can find in our records. I think it's also worth remembering when we're thinking about admissions or the sort of people who would come to Bethlehem. Historically, um, they were often quite poor. Um, their parish would put up a bond for them to go to Bethlehem. It was a relatively high sum. You got it back when you left. And the reason that Bethlehem required this, I suppose, insurance policy, if you like, was that if you died while you were in the hospital, it paid for your burial. And it also ensured that you left after 12 months because it was a, a money that people would want back. But from the beginning of the 19th century, and particularly from 1840, counties in England were required to build what they called county lunatic asylums. 
and they become the port of call for the very poor. Parishes, instead of funding patients to Bethlehem, will be more likely to send them to their local county asylum. And as a result, Bethlehem becomes more middle class as the 19th century goes on. I think that's you know, only fair to say. Now, there is another group of patients who don't leave after 12 months. Broadmoor Hospital doesn't open until 1865. Sorry, I've just lent on it, not helpful. Um, and for 50 years, Bethlehem is required to house what they call the State Criminal Lunatic Department. It's a source of constant tension. The government requires them to do, to do it. In theory, the government pays. In reality, that is not always forthcoming. The superintendent physician at Bethlehem claims that of the criminal patients, a third are mad. A third might have been mad when they were admitted, but they're not anymore. And a third never were. And it's a constant source of aggravation between Bethlehem and the government. You're looking at two patients who were part of that wing. They were housed in, I suppose, the Victorian equivalent of a porter cabin out the back. And one of them is the artist Richard Dadd, who you will see painting one of his more famous works, um, Oberon and Titania. And on the right, you'll see a man called Daniel McNaughton, who is still key in the, this country today, though few people have heard or remember his name. Daniel McNaughton attempted to assassinate the Prime Minister, who at the time was Robert Peel. Unfortunately, he didn't really know what the Prime Minister looked like, and he murdered his private secretary instead. He's sent for trial at the Old Bailey, but the judge realises very early on that Daniel McNaughton is a very unwell man. And so they work out a series of rules, the McNaughton rules, which are still the rules that govern criminal insanity today in trials in the UK and also in the US. So he is still quite an important character. Both of these individuals were transferred to Broadmoor and neither of them are ever released. They both die in the hospital. But for those who are meant to be leaving after a year, um, what exactly is the hospital doing to make them better? Well, if we go back to medieval times, most hospitals were part of religious complexes, monasteries typically, and it was thought that a religious environment would be helpful. They do also use some um, herbal remedies. Um, there is a period when um, Bethlehem uses what they call beating and correction as a method of treatment, um, which is quite alarming. Um, they do see the value of sleep as an early treatment, but it's really um, at that low level, really. For most of the period that we're talking about, so from the early modern period, really right up until the middle of the, the 19th century, they're still working on the theory of the four humours of the body. This idea that you have blood and black bile and yellow bile and phlegm. It's an ancient Greek idea. And you become unwell 
if these humours are out of balance. And so the standard treatments in Bethlehem were bleeding, purging and vomiting, um, which doesn't sound terribly helpful. Um, they were criticised about this. By the time we get into the, um, the 18th century, this practice is starting to come in for a little bit of criticism. So there's quite a dispute between the superintendent physician of Bethlehem and his local um, colleague at St Luke's Hospital down the road, William Batty, who Batty is a, definitely an advocate of not bleeding, and he talks about the treatment as no less destructive as a sword. Um, we also know that um, nobody took any notice because there is a large parliamentary inquiry into Bethlehem in 1815. And at that period, their treatment regime, as well as the conditions that people are living in, is brought under considerable scrutiny. And in his evidence to the Parliamentary Commission, Thomas Monroe, who is the, the Bethlehem physician, he's one of a long dynasty of Monroe physicians who um, work at Bethlehem, he's interviewed and he says about treatment, we apply generally bleeding, purging and vomiting. Those are the general remedies we apply. They're ordered to be bled about the latter end of May or the beginning of May according to the weather. And after they have been bled, they take vomits once a week for a certain number of weeks. After that, we purge the patients. That has been the practice invariably for years, long before my time. It was handed down to me by my father, and I do not know any better practice. So they were certainly very wedded to that idea. But as a result of the inquiry, um, new treatment regimes are encouraged, shall we say. The big change, though, comes in 1852 with the appointment of this man, Charles Hood, as superintendent physician. He is the first physician to be resident of the hospital rather than visiting, which has a huge impact. And he is an advocate of the movement of non-restraint and the, uh, a proponent of this new treatment regime, moral management. The idea that a hospital's environment, its practices, its occupations should be set up for a sort of psychosocial model of recovery, if you like. And he sets about introducing this into the Bethlehem Hospital. One of the big changes that he makes is to the ward environment. Now, if we go back even as far as the medieval period, people have commented that the environment does play a part in, in recovery and treatment. Hood really um, takes that forward. The idea is that if you provide somebody with an environment that is calm, pleasant, mildly stimulating, it will help you get better. So you'll see here that there are flowers, there are bigger windows, there's more light coming through the door, there are bird cages and paintings, etc. Dogs too. Uh, pets were seen as a key, uh, key thing. And many of our wards today have therapeutic dogs. He does use water treatment. Um, water has been used as a treatment historically, 
Um, in the 19th century, they tended to use the um, warm water treatment. So the lady that you see here is sitting in a bath of warm water. Um, that sounds okay. They're going to leave her there for about nine hours. Um, it's arguably nicer than the cold water treatment, though, um, because for that, they're going to wrap your body in very uh, linen that's been soaked in very cold water. So that's probably... Uh, warm water, I think, is, is arguably better. They're very keen on the idea of fresh air and occupation. So Hood's second prong of treatment, if you like, after the environment, is really the idea of occupation. So you see the ladies playing croquet and bowls, etc. There is a big entertainment programme at Bethlehem. The idea that you should talk about your problems at Bethlehem certainly is a 20th century idea. In the 19th century, talking about your problems was the last thing they thought you should do. Because if you were talking about them, you were dwelling on them. And so it was much better that you were busy and occupied. They put a lot of faith in the idea of routine. So they wanted you to join the sewing group, go to the choir practice, write for the patient magazine, go to the pantomime at Christmas, oh, and twice a month, go to the ball. Betham has a ballroom, and the patient dancers are seen as being a key part of, of treatment. So really quite a, a big change from bleeding and purging, certainly. When we look at the, the 20th century of Betham, um, these two photographs indicate um, not just occupational therapy, but industrial therapy. The idea that taking part in tasks like um, we have a, a there's a dairy, there's a, a working farm, there's lots of land. That idea of gardening, food production, all of those things were were important in a treatment regime. And many of the things that we think of as treatments, I think, are essentially 20th century things rather than 19th century. Um, from the 1920s, they're using electrotherapy, they're using ultraviolet light, um, they're using uh, hydrotherapy as, as treatments. Also in the 1920s, there is this rather odd period in Betham's history um, where they, they are using a form of surgery. Um, the idea is that mental illness is caused by bacteria and bacteria that travel to the brain. And the easiest way for those, ba sorry, those bacteria to get into your system is through dental decay. So in the 1920s, most of the patients who were admitted um, had major dental work done as a means of preventing or curing mental illness. They also use um, vaccine therapy as well. It's the same idea. It's this idea of focal sepsis, um, that the idea that the bacteria traveling to the brain is what's causing the, the difficulty. ECT is first used in 1940. And also in 1940, Betham performs its first and one of its very rare leucotomies, that idea of uh, you know, surgery to the, the frontal lobe of the brain. Surgery is not something that has been carried out um, at Betham very often. Um, and they have this very brief period of using it. 
And they also begin to, to uh, take on board the ideas of psychoanalysis, and they do start to introduce talking therapy. But that's very much um, a 20th century development. And then briefly, recovery. How do you judge recovery? Um, did any of these uh, practices work? In the 19th century, they claimed that over 50% of people recover. Their model for recovery was largely behavioral. So do you do the things that other people do? They were very interested in, do you keep yourself clean? Do you socialize? Um, do you keep yourself busy? And for a brief period, again under Hood, he wanted to collect evidence of his new regime and, and was it working? And he took photos. So you're seeing here photos of a lady called Emma, the one on the left taken when she was first admitted, the one on the right when she's going home. And they looked for changes. Um, Emma is somebody who was admitted to Bethlehem four times. Today we would say she was suffering from postnatal depression. Each time she has a baby, she's admitted within about a month. She stays typically nine or ten months each time and gets well. She goes home. She has another baby. Um, and each time she comes, she has to leave the baby at home. There is no provision for her to bring the baby with her, as there would be today. So really quite heartbreaking. Um, Eliza. Again, they were looking for the transformation. Um, Eliza didn't like the idea of having her photo taken wearing that dress. She didn't like the dress. She agreed that she could be photographed as long as she was holding a book. She had in her idea, you know, you must look occupied, you must look educated, perhaps. If you look carefully at the book, it's upside down because she can't read. But, you know, that's how she wishes to be photographed. So we think patients had some um, say over how they wanted to appear. William Green um, was a drum major in the Grenadier Guards. And again, we have the two photos. Um, many of our younger visitors to the museum, I have to say, think he looks better in the first one than in the second. They go, from, they go for the Johnny Depp hair, I think. And, um, but to a Victorian, um, that photograph would be unacceptable because he hasn't bothered to find a tie. His shirt is too big for him. If you look down, he's not done his flies up properly. Um, you know, he's not combed his hair. And perhaps the most striking is this one here, Harriet. Um, Harriet, I think, shows quite a transformation. Most people looking at the first photograph think that she might be as young as 14. Um, whereas in the second, they tend to put her, again, our 18 and 19-year-old visitors tend to put her at somewhere between 40 and 50. Um, in reality, there are only seven months between those two photographs, which is quite shocking. Um, Harriet, we would today say, was suffering from anorexia. They don't use that term before 1870, but she's very thin. I think that contributes to the fact that she looks very young. She's also wearing a very plain dress. And this is called strong clothing. It is not a restraint but it's made of canvas. And the reason that Harriet is wearing it is that one of the things she does when she is unwell 
is to rip her clothes up. And after a while, that's got a bit boring. And so they've put her in a dress that she can't tear. But interestingly for us, in the second photograph, you might be able to see that she's sewing. She's got a work basket. She's got some thread. Um, she's got some sewing on her knee. We know from her case records that she's a dressmaker. So when she's well, she makes clothes. When she's ill, she rips them up. They would look at that second photograph and they would say, if you're sewing again, you're well enough to earn a living. You're clearly well enough to go back to work, take your place in society. And that was really what they were trying to do, establish a routine that you could maintain in ordinary life. So to us, the photographs are fascinating. And also, if you, if you make the trek down to the museum, you'll see a number of our artworks, which again also reflect this idea of illness, but also of recovery. And probably one of the most dramatic is this, The Maze, by William Kurilek. You're actually looking at the inside of somebody's head. If you imagine somebody lying down, um, curled up slightly, but not lying on their back, lying on their side, so their shoulder is sticking up. Here. And you can see their teeth, their shoes, their hands. And what they've done is to open up their head so that you're looking inside it. And inside the head, he's tried to document all the things that have brought him to this point where he needs hospital treatment. Um, and this is a, a painting that is used with clinicians in art therapy, that idea of talking about his problems. But he does recover and paints the bottom picture out of the maze. So you have, again, that before and after. You have the maze, but you also have out of the maze. So, as I said to you at the beginning, this is a very um, quick look at over 700 years of the hospital's history, what it's tried to do in terms of um, providing for those who suffer from mental illness, how it's diagnosed it, um, what conditions has it provided, what treatments has it provided, and a, a brief look maybe at its ideas about what recovery means. Um, so I hope that's been useful. Do please um, ask any questions that you have. I'm very happy um, to answer. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for that wonderful talk. I think I was particularly inspired by your focus on the patient stories, uh, which we sometimes struggle with mm. in the historical record, but I think this was really illuminating. Um, will uh, a few minutes to answer yes, questions, course, if you will, yes. and don't be alarmed that one or other of us, one or other of us, sorry, will recapitulate your question. Um, we'll do our best anyway. Please. Um, the hospital in South London called Springfield, which recognised the deaf people have mental problems, uh, quite near you, a different branch. Yes. What I'm asking is back through the years, because of communication I think it's possible. I'm probably not the best qualified to, to answer that. Um, what we, I think communication has obviously been 
something that's been difficult and where people have been um, different or seen as different or not been able to communicate um, if they are distressed, then we've not always provided the best care for them. Um, I can only really speak about the Betham records. Um, and because of this quite, in some ways, harsh policy about who they're going to be admitted, I don't think it's the case. Um, certainly as far as Betham is, is concerned. Um, but I think, I think if we look back, it, it probably at, at times has happened. Sorry, that's a rather vague answer to your, to your question. Um, it's, um, it's not something that we find in our records or in the records, not just of the people who are admitted, but also the, the records of the people who presented for admission. Um, but yes, possibly the case. Yeah. What's the uh, history of drug centres? Um, very little until the 19th century. Um, they do use some herbal remedies. Um, so there are specific herbs that they see as being appropriate for certain uh, conditions. Um, things like lavender, you know, to calm down as a calming agent. In the 19th century, most of the drugs that they use are opiates of one description or another. Um, they're not drugs that will target specific conditions. They're largely used as sedatives um, to calm patients. And sedation is used um, pretty generally in the hospital up until around about the 1930s. Um, but it's really the 20th century and, and arguably the sort of second half of the 20th century where you start to get those drugs that will target specific conditions or are thought to be helpful for specific conditions. Um, so it's a relatively recent phenomenon. At the back, yes. Generally, um, before the beginning of the 19th century, it was either your family or um, it could have been your parish, the, the offices of your parish, if you were a, a pauper patient. And when we look at the 19th century, there are, uh, there's a system of voluntary admissions that begins to develop. So patients are able to put themselves forward for admission. But also, it's often family who seek help on their behalf and are then directed to provide medical certificates. So in terms of the paperwork that you would need to be admitted, you would need um, guarantors for the bond um, and you would need two medical certificates to, in order to be considered for admission. And that situation continues pretty much from the 19th century up until the period of you know, the NHS, with the change that because you get developing alongside institutions like Bethlehem and the retreat in York, which is a similar forward-looking um, charitable hospital, you get this system of the county lunatic asylums being developed. You do start to get this 
somewhat two-tier system and Betham and places like it steadily become more middle class. Lower middle class maybe, but middle class nevertheless. Yeah. Historically, Betham has always been an adult hospital. But like everything else, there are exceptions. When we look at our records, um, we have found a number of patients, and not a, a huge number, but a significant number of patients who are between 16 and 18. I think what we need to think about, though, is that at the time of those admissions, those people would not have been regarded as children. They would have been regarded more as adults. They are generally people who are out at work already before they're admitted. The most striking exception, we have found an admission of a girl of six in the early 19th century. And we are not quite sure how that came about. We have quite detailed records for her. And in fact, there are a number of drawings of her. This is the period before photography. But um, one of the, the superintendent physician at Bethlehem, Alexander Morrison, was um, keen to employ artists to draw the face. There are three drawings of her in various stages of her illness and recovery. And the notes suggest that they largely left her to herself. There are lots of comments about her being watched playing um, rather than any other forms of more invasive treatment. But she is the youngest patient we have ever come across. We think she's probably the only one. She's certainly the only one we've found so far and that it wasn't typical. The hospital today does treat young people. It has two wards um, on the Betham site one for children between 5 and 12, and then one for adolescents between 12 and 18. And after that, they would be on an adult ward. There are obviously lots of outpatient services for um, children and young people, but we do have two inpatient wards on our site. And that's a relatively recent, uh, that's a modern development. Historically, the hospital would not have taken children. No. That's a fascinating question, <laughs> and one that, unfortunately, I don't think our records will answer. Um, they, they keep, particularly for the 19th century, they keep really detailed records, um, but unfortunately, they don't always record the sort of things we want to know. <laughs> um, so they would record um, things like marital status, they would record children, um, education, all those sort of things. Um, and if you were to read all of them, which could be done, it would take some while, um, you might find comments from the medical certificates or from the initial assessment when somebody was admitted that might indicate some of what you're asking about. But it would be looking for a needle in a haystack, I have to say. Um, I think it's a really interesting question in terms of how they, um, you know, how they saw that. Um, and maybe they did, unfortunately for us, they didn't record it. 
if they did. A final question, please. Yes. Should I put her back up? <laughs> yes, they they do things like straitjackets and the mechanical restraints. Um, they stopped using those at Bethlehem in around 1840. This part of this non-restraint movement, um, and what they seem to have done is keep them in a little suitcase, which we now have and can display, as a sort of reminder to everyone what they, they didn't want to go back to that system. They do continue to use what they call strong clothing. Now, the version that Harriet's wearing, you can see she can get her hands out, but there are versions where the sleeves are um, sewn up. In other respects, it looks just like a dress. It's just quite heavy. And they also continue to use what they call the soft mittens, um, so they're not those big leather gloves that you might see historically. They look, um, I suppose the nearest I can give you is oven gloves. Does that make sense? Um, they were sometimes single or sometimes fastened together. Um, but the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, there are very careful restraints on when you can use those things. And it, can be, it has to be very time limited and it has to be in a very specific instance they would have seen the use of those, oddly, maybe to us, as allowing more freedom rather than less. One of the things that happens when they ban restraint is the staff ratio to patients has to go up dramatically. Um, when we're talking about the early period, you might have half a dozen members of staff looking after over 100 patients. You can't possibly have sight of everybody, and you're dealing with people who might be a danger to themselves or to others. They would have seen using the soft gloves, okay, I have somebody who might scratch other people or might wish to you know, do something harmful. I can put them in those gloves, in which case I can allow them to move around the hospital and socialise, or I, can't, I won't use them, but I'll lock them in their room. <laughs> and so they would have seen that as being actually relying on, you know, granting more freedom rather than less. Um, but in terms of clothing, um, what you see here is pretty typical. There are versions for men as well. Um, and they tend to form that this pretty standard, quite heavy material, um, you know, uh, fasteners that are difficult for a patient to get at, sometimes with the sleeves, um, you know, fastened together. And oddly, quite often decorated. Um, we have examples where... In some ways, it's quite a horrific garment, but it's got a little ruff around the collar and the cuffs. You know, it's quite bizarre in, in some ways. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. That You're was very welcome. Fascinating. <laughs> very, I found very moving talk. Um, I hope you enjoyed it too. I found it um, interesting. Please do complete the evaluations that we left on your chairs and just pop them at the little table um, by the door as you go out, please. Um, do then pop into the museum, pick up our events brochure to find out about uh, future events in this series. It remains only for me to thank our speech to text colleagues as ever, to thank Haley and Jane for organizing this, to thank you for coming along in such numbers, and finally to thank our speaker for a very thought-provoking talk. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>